This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. This week, my dad turned 70. Happy birthday, Dad. That's a big milestone of a birthday. Have you noticed how those milestone birthdays feel really significant as you approach them? They add a lot of worry, anxiety, expectation to life as you're getting close. And then once you step through that, nothing really seems to change. That's that's been my experience. have had a few milestone birthdays of my own. I remember celebrating milestone birthdays uh, growing up. When I was 11, we celebrated my dad's 40th birthday, an over-the-hill party, black decorations, and uh, old man gag gifts. It was hilarious to me as an 11-year-old, like a cane with a horn and a rearview mirror. It's, you know, funny stuff. And I remember thinking as an 11-year-old how old my dad was. And I was worried. Like, I was, I was, it was a fun party. It was, you know, for me, I laughed a lot. But I was also, honestly, a little worried about my dad. Because as an 11-year-old, you know, anybody over 30 is, is ancient. And I was concerned for how long he might live. You know, at some undisclosed amount of time after that, we had a 40th birthday for my mother as well. Protect her age right now by not telling you exactly when that happened. You're welcome, Mom. But I'm reminded of the significance. Maybe you can think back to your last milestone of a birthday. For some of you, it was 16, and you're able to drive. Some of you, you look back to 18, and you're allowed to vote, register for the draft, you know, all those fun, responsible adult kinds of things. Maybe 21 was your last milestone. I'll just stop there. We'll just pretend like 21 was the last for all of us, okay? Think back to those expectations that, that you, you built up in your mind, the feelings that you had. Maybe even for some of us, a little bit overwhelming as, as we came close to that milestone, thinking about all the, the weight of responsibility, the, the health anxiety about, about getting older. And then... The day you, you turn that next decade older, nothing really changes. Y- yes, you're in a new status, a, a, new, a new year designated by your name. But maybe that feeling is a little bit more than what it needs to be. Today, as we step back into Romans chapter 5, Paul is going to be talking about some some themes of faith that are both a feeling, subjective uh, recognition of what's happening, and also an objective status, a a very clear and distinct change from one status to another. And and we're going to walk through those descriptions together with him. So I just want to have you think about that, of uniting feeling and uh, subjective feeling and objective status together as we we think about these, these items of faith. We're going to begin in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. If you have a Bible, if you want to open there, please do so. The words will be on the screen behind me. If you want to use the YouVersion app, you can search under events for Parkview Finley and find scripture and sermon notes there as well. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ 
through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have peace with God. Now, peace is a feeling that we, we understand as it resolves the, the feelings of, of tension that we have, the feelings of, of conflict, of unrest. It's a feeling that, that washes over us, and we begin to understand the, the indescribable peace that goes beyond understanding, a peace of God that answers the unrest that sin produces in our lives. Peace also is, is a status a very formal, objective, signed by treaty between two countries. And we understand that peace exists in, in both those realms. What, what Paul says here is that we have peace because we've been justified through faith, a peace that answers the unrest of sin in our lives. Sin produces conflict in us on different levels, internally. We feel the, the tension, the conflict that sin produces, knowing that we want to belong and be obedient to God, and yet, yet, disobedient and wanting to be free from that sin that we've indulged in. There's this uh, feeling of unrest within us when there is sin in our lives. There's no peace. We're conflicted about our behavior, torn by guilt. We recognize the, the difficulty of that in relationships with other people and with God. There, there, there's a sense of separation that comes when we are indulging in sin as we turn away from God as we, we push back from other people. We feel resentment sometimes towards God, fear of punishment that we know we deserve, guilt and shame. There, there are a lot of feelings in us. When we have peace with God, that peace resolves those feelings of unrest. It brings us to a point of calm in our relationship with the Lord that begins internally as that peace of God resolves the, the tension, the conflict within us, and extends in our relationships, our relationship with God. To have peace with God means that we are no longer existing in hostility with God. We're no longer deserving his wrath because of the sin in our lives. When we're justified through Christ, we're made right. Remember last week, we, we defined that word justification in terms of being guilty of sin and yet declared not guilty by the blood of Christ that washes those sins away. As he, takes those sin, he took those sins upon himself on the cross. He declared us not guilty. And as we're justified through Christ, we have peace with God because Christ took the punishment that we deserved. It's an overwhelming new sense of peace, a new status in Christ as we're justified. We are at peace with God through Christ, that we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That word access it is intriguing, and it's used in different places in different ways, and, and in other places it means uh, different things. I want to add some light to what we're talking about here. It's, it's used in some cases to describe being, being admitted into the presence of royalty, you remember our study in the book of Esther when she needed to go before King Xerxes and she feared for her life coming to speak to the king unasked for, unbidden, that her life would be forfeit if he didn't extend the scepter to her. And when he did, he granted her access to be in his presence, to speak openly to him. That's what we're talking about here, is going before God, having this access. Another way it's used 
uh, is in terms of, of ships that have been out at sea fighting the wind and the waves and the turbulent ocean. And then they are given access to pull into harbor, the calm waters, to recover from their voyage at sea. The sailors who have been battling and bringing the ship home now can rest and repair the ship that has been, been torn in some ways apart. And it's a representation of how difficult life can be by our own power. And when we enter into, when we have access to the presence of God, how much calm and peace is brought into our lives when we understand and rely on the power and presence of God in our lives to do in us and through us what we can't do for ourselves. We continue reading in verse 2. And we, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our relationship with God brings us hope, a hope that's developed in our lives by God. It begins thinking about the glory of God, the glory of God that will be revealed, that we get to share in. And as we begin to understand this hope that we have, it's developed in us as we experience suffering, difficulty in our lives. Now remember Paul's talking to the Christians in Rome who, if they haven't yet, are going to, to experience significant suffering. And we understand how Paul is describing this growth into hope that begins in suffering. We all face difficulty in life. We have all experienced suffering in one way or another. And for most of us, the tendency that we have is to look for a shortcut through that difficulty, through that suffering. To look for the fastest way out of it. To look for, in some ways, a way around that suffering. To circumvent the, the difficulty that we face in life. Maybe from our understanding of what Paul is telling us here, the best thing for us would be to move through that suffering and trust the purpose of God, that everything we face will, will help us to grow into who it is that he wants us to be and that the, the suffering that we experience in life has a purpose. Instead of waiting for that suffering to pass by, we would willingly step into it. And when we do, when we experience those difficult situations, when we experience suffering, we, we develop perseverance, that God develops perseverance in us. Not just to passively let suffering go by, but we learn to plant our feet and face the suffering that comes. It, it shores us up. It builds our resistance it helps us grow in confidence and trust, seeing how God is working, seeing how God is using the things that we're facing. We're able to stand and move through suffering and develop the endurance through that perseverance. As we grow, perseverance builds character in us. God is developing our, our lives, the, the traits that, that that are reflected through our character as we face suffering, as we lean on him, as we, we, he grows perseverance in us, character is growing as well. As we become 
more and more what he wants us to be as he's molding and shaping our lives in his image, we find hope at the end of this progression as God works in us. We look back and see how he has carried us through difficulty. We see how he has been with us, present through those things and has been developing us in the process and we begin to trust in his promises, trust in his presence, trust in his power. And we have hope in him. A hope that isn't a false hope. It's a a hope that has been proven by God's presence and also affirmed by the Holy Spirit that's been poured out into our lives because of God's love for us. Reminds us of the assurance that we have in the promises of God. In verse 6, we continue. You see it at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the fullness of the expression of God's love in our lives. That he is willing to meet us where we are. In the condition that we're in. With his grace. He's not waiting for us to be good enough to receive it. He's not waiting us waiting for us to be respectable enough to belong. He reaches out to us at just the right time. When we were helpless, when we were hopeless because of the sin in our lives, he sent Christ to die for us, to redeem us from that situation, from that condition, so that we could belong to him. It's an expression of his love for us because we are his. Now, most of us would view our relationship with God as something that we would choose to believe, that we would begin a relationship with God when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior. But when God looks at us, he's not looking at at someone who needs to begin a relationship that never existed before. He's looking at his creation. He's looking at us as his children who need to return to him. Not as strangers who need to begin a relationship, but those who need to return to God. It's his love for us that reaches into our situation and helps us understand our need for him. Answers the hopelessness of sin. In verse 9, he says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What we need to understand is this is what what Christ died to to provide for us, to, to reconcile us to God. And we're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Now, when a relationship is broken, And that relationship comes back together again. That process is called reconciliation. When friends have a fight, they don't talk to each other for a long time. And then eventually they come back together and become friends again. That's reconciliation. When a husband and wife, when an offense occurs between them, they separate and then come back together again. That's reconciliation. We understand how the process works. 
that when an offense occurs that, that divides a relationship, reconciliation can only happen when both of those parties want the relationship to come back together again. When they both want that, the, the wrong that took place has to be identified. Specifically, the person who did wrong has to own it and confess it. And then that wrong has to be amended. And, and amends have to be made. An apology, yes. But not just an apology. Restitution. Uh, a way of overcoming that wrong, uh, of paying back that wrong, sometimes is, is necessary. And the one who was wronged has to accept that apology, um, begin the process of forgiveness, accept the restitution. And as both parties agree, they can then move forward to rebuild a relationship. And I want to be clear about this, that when reconciliation happens, it's, it's not necessarily a restoration of what was. In fact, that's often a very dangerous way to, to rebuild a relationship. Reconciliation involves reestablishing that relationship under new terms, an agreement by both parties that changes will be made so that that wrong won't happen again, so that there won't be a, a time when they come back to this, this brokenness in their relationship. It's a significant part of the, of the process of reconciliation. Now, when we consider our relationship with God, the breaking point, the offense, is our sin. Sin separates us from God. And we recognize the damage that's caused by our sin. And, and, and throughout the New Testament, the, this word reconciliation is used to describe what happens through Jesus Christ. That, that we understand that both of us want to reestablish this relationship. That God's desire is for all men to recognize their need for a Savior. We need to want to return to God. And in order to do that, we need to, to own the wrong, own the sin, confess it to the Lord, and begin a process of repentance. Now, the, the change that takes place in, in being reconciled to God is the point at which restitution would take place. Now, we should be responsible for, for making amends. We should be responsible for that restitution, but Christ steps in. Because of God's love for us, he sent Christ to die for our sins, to pay that price of restitution for us as he took those sins upon himself and justified us, declared us not guilty, so that we could be reconciled to God. And then we move forward to reestablish our relationship with God. Moving forward so that we, we turn our back on sin, so that we no longer go back to the way that we were. We make a commitment to the Lord to reestablish our relationship with him. It's an incredible picture of the wholeness that comes back into our lives because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to reconcile us to God. Verse 12, Paul's words continue. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, Remember, Paul has been addressing the believers in Rome who are, some of them, from a Jewish background, others from a non-Jewish background, Gentiles. And Paul has been uniting them in their understanding of faith. 
a little while ago, he was talking about Abraham, how Abraham was the father by blood of the Jews and by the father by faith of the Gentiles, helping them understand that they were coming together in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is going to point even further back to Adam as the ancestor of all of the believers who were gathered there to help them understand the situation that they're in. Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, as we look back through chapter five, structurally speaking, we can recognize how Paul has been using Paired statements, parallel statements. In poetry, this is called a couplet. Now, Paul is writing in a different way, but he's using two statements together to reinforce the idea of what we need to understand. He begins with something that he's already described and then moves to the next thing, emphasizing its significance. In verse 9, he said this, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath? In verse 10, If we were reconciled, to him through the death of his son, how much more shall we be saved through his life? He continues in verse 12. Just as sin entered the world and death to all men, how much more did God's grace and the gift overflow to the many? Verse 17. For if death reigned through that one man, how much more will righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul is pointing us to the power of Christ, the power of his grace over the consequences of sin. Verse 18, he continues, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace provides new life through Christ. Now, if we're to understand Paul's words correctly through this portion of chapter 5, we need to measure them against the context of Scripture and recognize Paul is talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. And so we turn back to Genesis and we think about that story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And when, Adam played, when God placed Adam in the garden, gave him the tour, so to speak, he pointed to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said to Adam very specifically, you cannot eat of this tree or you will die. Now, Adam had free reign in the rest of the garden, the tree of life he had access to to eat. And yet this tree was off limits. It's, it's a very specific instruction, command of God, don't eat of that tree or you will die. And we know how the story unfolded. It's temptation. Adam and Eve both ate of the tree. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we read the response of God. The Lord said, 
The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taking. There are consequences of sin. Consequences produced there that Adam and Eve were cut off from access to the tree of life. Their labors in the world would be more difficult. Now, think about this. Adam and Eve would have lived in the Garden of Eden in perfect harmony, relationship with God, unending. But sin changed that. Their decision to disobey God brought death as the consequence of that sin. And Paul's point here is this. The power of Christ's sacrifice is greater than the consequence of Adam's sin. Why? Because Christ brings new life into our lives. In Christ, we have been given this new life that, that is very specific in two ways. One, it is a hope for the future of an eternal life with God in relationship with him. But it's also a present reality, an invitation to, to recognize the eternal quality of life here and now as we live for God's glory, as we give our lives in service to his kingdom, as we recognize his calling in our lives to surrender all of who we are, we are given new life. It's the victory that Christ accomplished as he conquered sin and death. It is the hope that we have been given through Christ. But it's a hope that we have to choose to receive. Life through Christ where we once faced hopelessness and helplessness because of our sin. We have been given a new status. We've been given access to this grace in which we now stand by the power of the blood of Christ that washes away our sins. That's what makes this chapter significant is recognizing the objective truth of moving from one condition to another by the power of the blood of Christ, but also of feeling the change that takes place in us, of recognizing the, the significance of living life for him. And yet we also understand that we can't trust our feelings. But there are days when we feel close to God. There are days when we feel his presence and his power. We feel like we're we're. we're doing significant things for his kingdom. There are other days where we feel lost and alone. Days when we feel like we fail. And the feelings of guilt and shame distract us from our relationship with the Lord. We can't always trust our feelings, but we can trust in the power and the promise of God, knowing that we have been justified by the blood of Christ. Know that we'll be declared not guilty and moved into this grace that in which we now stand that moves us and motivates us and guides us into the life that we're called to live. This is the significance of the, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, calling us into that relationship with him. If you have a decision to make this morning about your relationship with Jesus, if there's anything in your life that you need prayer for, I would encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing together. Please stand.